0: Reacts, Let's see here. Okay, that's a problem. can't see that, can you? The big idea that I want to get across is acts don't react. Wow, okay, I'm gonna have a problem. Thanks, Jed. The background got up there wrong. Okay, but we'll start with the text then, because the text is up there, right? Um, and then the text disappeared. Let's look at the text. Okay, and we'll read it together, and then we'll... Uh, look at it. There, we there we go so let's start again at the beginning of the paragraph and again out of ephesians chapter 4 he's saying that we're we've learned christ so we're putting off the old man with its corrupt desires and we're 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 putting on the new man that created in likeness according to god and in the middle is that re- renewing the mind aspect that we're trying to see the grace that's, that god has given us and let that renew our desires and renew our thoughts and our patterns of life and so he says, therefore, there's these three aspects to things that, that come into play. Uh, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give, uh, give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need." Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And here you see, again, this last, the last verses here, what we're focusing on, the putting off aspect is putting off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with malice. We'll get to that. And we're putting on as new creations in Christ being kind to one, another, one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And the renewing aspect of your mind is as God in Christ forgave you. This reality of who we are and that we've been forgiven. But the question is, as we look at that, and as I thought about it some, is why do we struggle with forgiveness? Because um, it's one thing when you're a kid, you know, and you, you know, somebody, you know, slams into you on the school ground, and you're upset with them for slamming into you on the school ground, and the teacher says to you, forgive him, you know, and you're like, okay, I guess, forgive, I will forgive you, you know, and, but it's, it's much more difficult to forgive when someone's really hurt you, they've disappointed you, they've betrayed you, they've abandoned you, they've denied you in some, in some way, and, and we struggle to, with forgiveness, and forgiveness, just to clarify a few things here, forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation, like everything's good now, but forgiveness is the start of that process, Forgiveness is not even necessarily about change like I'm going to forgive you as long as you change, you know. Otherwise, Jesus words about forgiving 70 times 7 don't make a lot of sense if forgiveness is about change. Forgiveness is primarily about justice and relationship that we we know there's been an injustice in some fashion and we're we're releasing that injustice and, and affirming the relationship in some fashion. Now why is this important? Well, because there's, a, there's first forgiveness and there's forgiveness, right? The, the world has a form of forgiveness that's out there that, that focuses either on two things. Like I said, it might focus on change. Like, I'll forgive you as long as I see that you're changing, which is really more about reconciliation than it is about forgiveness. But that's, but so, that's sometimes what we hold over one another's heads, right? Like, you know, you've hurt me, but if I see you changing, then okay, it's, it's good, I'll, I'll forgive it. We have another, have another form of forgiveness that's out there, and that's more focused just on the idea that if you don't forgive someone, if you hold bitterness and anger in your heart, it won't be good for you. Your mental health, your peace of mind, your, your, even your physical health will struggle if you do not forgive someone who's hurt you. In fact, I looked it up in, in, in Mayo Clinic, and they have a whole section on forgiveness as part of mental health. And they list off, they say, what are the benefits of forgiving someone? Forgiveness can can lead to healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, improved self-esteem are all things they list that would benefit you if you forgave someone. And that's not bad. None of those are bad things to do. But is, when we're talking about forgiveness as Christian forgiveness, what are we talking about here? Is that the same thing? We're just saying, hey, Christians, you should have a more motivation to forgive because you know better, you know, kind of approach. Uh, or is he saying something different here? And I think overall he is saying something different than that here. That this is not about just guilting you into forgiving someone, nor motivating you to forgive someone because it's best for you to forgive someone else. But it's more about understanding what God has done for you, the grace that you have received, and considering forgiveness not as a process necessarily of personal change, although it does change you when you forgive, but it's going back to the glorious message of what God has done for you in Christ and using that as the motivation and the foundation for why you forgive, and how you forgive. So let's look, first of all, and, and again, the big idea here is act, don't react. Paul is saying, in, in a big picture sense, he's saying, don't react to how people treat you. Act out of the grace you've received. So act, don't react, is where we're headed. The, the idea that he wants to get across here. And he, he ends the, the verse this way, right? Even as Christ even as God in Christ forgave you. The basis for our forgiveness is remembering that we forgive others, is remembering the grace of our forgiveness, that God has forgiven us. Uh, there's a, there's a, you look through the Bible and, and talking about different verses on forgiveness. You have verses like, as far as the east is from the west, so God has forgiven your trespasses from you, right? He's, he's, he's put that as far away, you know, because you can, you can go north and south, right? And you can eventually, as soon as you get far enough north, you will start heading south again. But if you, if you go east, you're always going east. And if you go west, you're always going west. They never meet, even though we talk about east and west meeting, right, in various formats. But, but here he's saying forgiveness is such that it, it takes away our sin from us. It never comes back to haunt us, in a sense. These are, in a sense, the promises that God makes to us from his word about how he forgiveness, He says, in a sense, he's saying, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. These are the promises that God makes to you in forgiveness, that the things that you have done to hurt him, to, to harm his plan, to harm his creation... He is willing to forgive in Christ. If you've been a Christian for a while, or in some ways just any person who tends to forget (laughs) all the ways they hurt people, right? It, 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 It can be a good reminder to go back and consider what God has done in forgiving you. Because it's not just like he's said, oh yeah, you messed up a little bit here and a little bit there, but uh, it's it's not a big deal. Let's just forget about it. For God to forgive you meant him acknowledging that you and I have messed up his plan. He had a plan to do good to all of mankind, to all of creation. He had a plan for us to to be a, a, a benefit to one another, to encourage one another and build one another up. We had a plan for us to point one another to himself to say, look at the God who made us. Look at the God who created us, how great and glorious he is, how wise and wonderful, how, how powerful and just. Look at this God who has made us and we live in light of him. But instead of doing that and of being, having that being our lives, we instead turn to each other and say, make much of me. Look how great I am. Or we tear one another down, look, <laughs> man, you're not so great. Just, just saying, just saying, but you're not so great, right? And we tear each other down. We don't point each other to the God who made us and loves us. We instead demand that we serve one another or that we, they, if we're not willing to serve one another. We tear one another apart. And it's not just the really evil people who do that. We all do that in various ways. So much so, in fact, that God had to send his son to die to pay the penalty for the destruction that we had caused. This wasn't just a, well, a sweep under the rug, no big deal, we'll move on. This was a, the only way we can solve this is for my son to die. And so Christ came. He died a horrific death on the cross as a curse. And then he lay buried for three days. All because of our sin. Because of the separation we have from God. And yet this demonstrates God's love for us, God's, God's care of us, right? So that he is willing to forgive our sin, not to sweep it under the rug, but to say, I will, I will solve the problem. I will initiate a better relationship than what we have now. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 7, verse 41. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Jesus turned to his audience and said, Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, not to Simon the disciple, Simon his host, "'Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss me. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" He who loves forgives little, loves little. He who forgives has been forgiven much, loves much. So when we talk about even as God in Christ forgave you, one of the reasons why I think Christians overall struggle with forgiveness is because we lack a realization of how much we've been forgiven. But that's more like saying just no more, in a sense. And I don't think that's really the issue when we're talking about loving God as he is—or forgiving as God has forgiven us, I think there's, there's more involved. I was running—I was listening to a podcast, and this guy was tell, telling about the study that had been done. Um, it was released, I think, in 2005, but where back, in, back in my day, which is a ways ago now— they, they, they would often label kids as shy, right? You were kind of shy if you kind of were a little standoffish. You didn't really want to interact with people too much. you were hesitant to meet new people, okay? Um, and there's, there's, we, they don't do that as much anymore. There's reasons for that, which I think overall are good. But so, so what they did, though, is they started this 25-year study where they studied, okay, they, these kids that are labeled shy— well, how do you deal with that, and, and what are the results, is ultimately what they studied. So they, they studied this, this out a little bit, and uh, they, over the first few years, they realized there's three basic strategies that parents are, have in regards to shy kids. The first strategy was to identified that their their child was shy was the parents often then said i got to toughen this kid up i got to make sure they can handle life and so they would they would kind of push him they would push their kids they would say hey let's get let's get into more difficult situations let's, let's challenge these kids to step up and to do better at handling difficult situations of course you have another kind of overarching group of parents then who decided instead of pushing their kids they were going to protect their kids they're going to be like hey I think I think we're gonna I think he's he's obviously nervous he's he's not sure let's just protect him until he is and so they would just protect their kids from any negative or uh, potentially uh, challenging situation anytime their kids seem to get nervous or afraid or just new situation they would often pull them out and uh, And wait for them to be ready for it, and then it sounds like Goldilocks and the three Bears, there was the third option <laughs> where the parents just kind of stayed in a sense emotionally attuned to the children, where they would uh, they would uh, overall just watch their children are they handling things well maybe they need just gonna pull them aside and give them a few strategies yeah I know you're kind of nervous here but this is how you can handle it or if they're you know really okay let's just back off here and we'll try again later but they would they would keep trying to help their kids and keep their kids engaged in the process and staying attuned to their emotional state but keep engaged with them through the process of whatever they were going through and what's interesting there, I bring that up not to say, okay, what, what's your parenting strategy, is to, is to say, look, the, the results after 25 years, what happened to those children? And, and what they found with the, the parents who pushed their children is that, they had, that those children often excelled in, in, in a lot of ways. They would be willing to take on hard things. They would push themselves. They would do a lot of hard things. But at the same time, there was often this uh, a lack of sensitivity to the people around them, a lack of awareness of their own emotional state and the, of others' emotional states. And they would often struggle to have good relationships because they just, pushed right through any problem, right? And it's like the solution to survive in this situation is push through, ignore a bunch of things, and just push through. Of course, uh, and so the, the parents who protected their children overall, they, they, they found after 25 years as they became adults and as they got into life, is that... Those, those children actually struggled with anxiety overall. They, they really struggled with, okay, how is this going to go? They, the, the ways that they had with their parent protecting them disappeared, right? And so they were stuck with their own resources for how to deal with life and found them to be often inadequate. And so they were often anxious, anxious people who were often afraid of, of what the next problem is going to be. And of course, the, the third group of children overall, just kind of, they didn't, they reported, they never remember being labeled as shy at all, you know. They, it wasn't about the label, it was about just going through life and, and processing and using their, what, what they had. And so it, so these different groups, I bring that up because I'm not, I'm, what I'm not saying is that, that it solves all the problems of the world or anything like that. But it, what it illustrates is, is that when we talk about relating to other people, the way you relate is often the way you've been related to. And, and when it comes to God, when we, when we say God has forgiven you, if you've been pushed through your life, when it, and the emotional hit of, okay, God's forgiven me, what often happens is you tend to be like, okay, that's great, but let's not emphasize that too much. Let's not get all wrapped up in that. Let's just keep moving, you know what I mean? Let's, let's not dwell in it. Let's not find the resources in it and, and enjoy it. It's just, let's just keep moving through life. Let's, let's not worry too much about who's been forgiven and who's not. Let's just keep moving along. The, the, anxious, the anxious people, on the other hand, often when, when they hear, you've been forgiven, they're wondering, for how long? You know, like, How long is this going to last? When is this going to change? Like, like, what if God does something I don't expect? How do I know I've been forgiven? And so, when we say, forgive even as Christ forgave you, as Christians, we struggle with that because we look around us and we think, but how do, if God's like my parents, in a sense, or God's like the the major figures in my life, how do I know that I've been forgiven? Or why should it really matter at all? And yet, frankly this is why paul wrote the book the way he did he starts off in ephesians chapter one and he's like you've received every spiritual blessing in christ you've been chosen you are redeemed you're adopted you're forgiven you're you're part of this family of god you you know god's plan from now from to into eternity future and you have the holy spirit these this is the grace that you have received You are forgiven. You're part of God's family. You've received this grace. And Paul knows that it's hard to receive it. Sometimes. It's hard to to look at the, the, the magnitude of this forgiveness that we have received and to really accept it. Ever thought about Christmas? How do you enjoy Christmas? Or maybe you don't, right? Like, all of a sudden, all the major people in your life are going to give you a gift. Are you like, woohoo, party time, let's go, people love me, you know what I mean? Or are you like, man... I hope I get them good presents because if I don't I'm gonna come across as insensitive. I better figure that out. Like what's what's the what's the what's the the money limit here we're talking about for gifts? I gotta figure this out so I, I look good but but I don't really care. You know what I mean? Or 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 maybe you're like, man, this is how how do I know that the people love me? They're going to get me some gift that they don't really care about anyway and, and, uh, and if, I, if I decide I don't like it, maybe they're not going to like me after all and then, then, and then the relationship is going to break down because all these gifts are just opportunities for relationships to fall apart, you know? And, and sometimes, so for some of us, we just can't even handle Christmas and just enjoy it and be like, hey, this is great, I'm having fun. We, should, we love each other. We're all worried about what our relationships are really about, right? Paul here is saying, God in Christ forgave you. He sent his son. He valued the relationship that much. And if you've come to him and requested forgiveness from him, as it says in Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then you receive forgiveness. It's free, full, forever. All the past sins that you've committed, all the things that you're struggling with right now, and any future sins that you ever will commit are forgiven in Christ because he died on the cross as God in the flesh. That's an amazing thing. It's overwhelming to consider. And yet, he loves you like that. And he asks you to receive it. To live in light of it. To live in joy of it. He's not holding it over your head going, ah, they mess up one more time though. They're out, you know. Nor is he like, "Ah, I just did it because I had to, you know. I don't care about these people really. I just feel like I better do it anyway. You know? No, he loves you. He cares about you. He sent his son to die for you. And so if we don't live in that light, if we don't let that, that truth soak into our souls, when we are mistreated, when people do things that really harm us, we will struggle with forgiveness. And Paul here knows that Christians do, and so he says, here's how you work through this process. He says you need to remove malice. You need to remove malice. And when you read through this list here, he's, he talks about let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Remember earlier, in, the, in this same paragraph, he's already said, be angry and do not sin, right? So he's, he's not just saying, get rid of all the emotions that you have. What he is saying is that there's this, if you look at, again, lists often in the Greek, the last part, the last word in the list tells you kind of the, the overarching theme that the, the author is going for. So for instance, in the fruit of the Spirit, let, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control is the end word. And then what does he say at the end? Against such there is no law. <laughs> like, again, like, if you have self-control, if you're living in the Spirit, if you're living in love, and all these things are a part of you, then there's no law. You don't need external controls, in a sense, right? Because you're living in the Spirit. Here, the word malice is the key. It's not like you're getting rid of all the emotions, you're getting rid of how... All of these negative emotions are controlled by malice. What is malice? Well, verses that talk about this, malice is listed in Romans chapter 1. It says, people that were ungrateful to God and rejected God were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He's saying that there's, there's this idea that the, the people that reject God, that aren't living in gratefulness to God, live in malice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, that is, the, the, the feast of the table of the Lord, is, is really what he's talking about there, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The malice is this idea that underneath the surface of our behavior, underneath the surface of our emotions, we, we want something bad to happen. Why? Why? Malice is a need to control the ending of the story so that to the way you think it should go, that the enemy would get their due, right? It's that, that underlying thing of the bad people should, should get what, what's coming to them. And I know who the bad people are. Alexander Dumas wrote many famous novels. He wrote uh, Three Musketeers, etc. One of the ones that focuses on this subject is The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay? I don't know if you've read it or not, but The Count of Monte Cristo starts with this guy, and he's engaged to this girl. He's looking forward to marrying her. He's in love, and uh, his, his rival is afraid that this is really going to go through, and so he concocts this plan with two other guys to get him this... This, this guy accused of, he's just a common sailor in a sense, but he gets, gets him accused of treason, gets him thrown in prison. He's no longer able to marry the girl he loves. And in fact, he's just langu- left to languish in the prison and die. He, he, he escapes uh, via this, this other prisoner who tells him that, hey, uh, he, he helps him learn about life and learn about things, and, and then uh, he's about to die, but he says there's a treasure in this island that, that nobody knows about, but you can have, and you can do what you want with it. And he, so he, as this, this fellow prisoner dies, he uses that to escape and, and free himself, and he gets the treasure, and he becomes the Count of Monte Cristo. And he goes back into his, the people in his life, who don't recognize him now because they think he's dead, they don't, they're, they're, he's rich, he doesn't look like he normally did, and he's plotting to ruin them. He's operating with malice. He finds these people and he manipulates, they're rich now too, they're successful, and so he manipulates their finances and he manipulates their relationships to destroy them. And in, as that process is happening, it starts to not just affect the people that, that, that he hates, but also the people that he loves, and and he's just operating with this kind of the secret intent to harm the people around him, and that's that idea of malice. Eventually, he decides, man, this is this this is not. I should not control the story, so to speak. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, in a sense, forgive and move on. But Alexandre Dumas, a French Catholic, he he, he struggles to figure out. Well, what does that really look like? Besides God. And he knows God exists, but he doesn't know how to put that really into operation. And so he just has the count of Monte Cristo leave and go to the to the orient to get away and heal his heart, so to speak. Because he can't really see that he's been forgiven. And if you can't see that you've been forgiven, you can't write a story where healing takes place, where forgiveness is truly there. We all, we, we all have this desire to control the story, right? When, when people have hurt us, we want to see those who have hurt us hurt in return, destroyed in some sense. Anxiety feels that need in order to avoid the pain of seeing even wi- evil win, even temporarily. Anxiety's like, wow, if evil wins, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe, maybe God, God cares about them more than he cares about me. And we, we hate to see Evil win because of what it says about us. If we're anxious, we also malice wants to write the story because if we're just pushing through, we need to ignore the pain of seeing the results of evil. We just don't want to face it. We just want to move on. We don't. We don't. We figure if, if I have to face it, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. So I just need to push through and keep going. And and so to do that, I've got to control what I can. To remove malice here, in, in this sense, is to say, you know what? God controls the story. God controls the story. I'm, I can't control the story. I can connect with God. I can connect with the God who controls the story. I can ask him to remove pain and sorrow and, and hurt. And you know what? I know he will, because we know the end of the story, right, as Christians? We know the end where God wipes every tear from our eye and he brings us together as a family and he restores us to himself. This is the end we know. Why do we think we need to control it? Why do we think we need to hurt those who have hurt us? So he's saying we need to remove malice. But he also says we need to then put on sharing forgiveness. I'm going to skip all that there. Share forgiveness. Notice what he says. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. We put this on. This is, this is our, in a sense, our default way we relate to people. The, the idea of being kind is just that sense of what, what's good in situation. the situation. The idea of of tenderheartedness, it could be translated sometimes compassionate, right? It's, it's a word used in the New Testament for good emotion, that sense of good emotions. Um, it, it, the same word is used in Mark six thirty four when it says, when he went ashore he saw a great cow and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That sense of, man, they're trapped, they don't have everything they need Jesus tells the parable right of the servant who's, who's, in Matthew 18, he has this huge debt, millions of dollars of debt, and so he falls on on his knees before the king, and he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, which he could not do. He could not repay, and it says, out of pity or compassion, same word here, for him, the master of that house, of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. That sense of compassion, tender-heartedness it's it's the idea here of which we've referred to earlier in some ways it's the idea of just creating space for grace it's the sense of i'm not going to be able to solve all of this i'm not going to be able to 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 make everything right but i know the guy who is i know the one who is he he is still working the this situation this situation is not done And so I'm going to just create this space where I expect grace to flow into. I express grace to work. And I'm not going to condemn and I'm not going to destroy, but instead I'm going to be like, man, look at the opportunity for God to do something here. Can you see how story fits in here, in this process? Like, if, if you don't have a sense of story, then you don't have a sense for how God has forgiven you, and you don't have a sense for what could happen in the story. You have to control it. You have to step on and say, I've, I've got to figure out how to make all everything right myself. And if anything, we learn from the Bible is we don't have the wisdom to make the right story. <laughs> we can't write the perfect ending to our stories but we know the one who can. We know the one who has. And so we create this space for grace and we treat one another with kindness. Of course, it reminds me of the parable of the lost son, right? Otherwise known as the prodigal son. Right? The son... Wants his inheritance. He's like, Dad, I want my inheritance. And he and he, he's like, give me everything I own. And so he his father, even though he's not dead yet, he still gives him his inheritance. It's like, it's a total in that culture, that's a totally disrespectful thing to do, right? Be like, even in our culture today, Dad, give me my inheritance. I know you're not dead, but I want it. I mean, it's pretty disrespectful, right? And yet the father gives the inheritance to his son, and the son goes and squanders the inheritance, wastes it all, right? And and then He's sitting in a pigsty, feeding pigs. He's like, you know what? My father's servants at least live better than this. I'm going to at least go back there and live better than I am living right now. And so he heads back. And Luke 15 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate it. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. (sighs) Do you see the joy that the Father has in showing compassion to His Son? And we have the privilege of taking just a small segment of that joy and sharing it with one another because we've been forgiven all the things that i've done to hurt people and the ways i've been proud and the ways i've i've squandered my gifts and abilities and the way i the way i've been angry with people and hurt people and said unkind words to people i've been forgiven by the one who it hurts the most the god who made me so i can turn around and i can share that forgiveness with those around me. I can be released from my anxiety because I learn to taste of God's grace and share it with those around me. I can learn to slow down and share my forgiveness with those around me rather than just pushing through everything that I face. And again, we're back to the big idea. Will you act based on God's forgiveness rather than react to how others treat you? Pepper Sweeney is an actor. He's telling this story. He, he said, "He said he, one weekend he he had several things that he, he had to do. He, his, his son was tearing down uh, part of part of his basement, and so he went and helped him out and tore some things out. It was pretty heavy lifting. And then, uh, and then he he had a, another friend who was moving, and so he went and he helped them move. and And so when it came time to, to mow the lawn." He wasn't doing so well, you know what I mean? Some of us feel that way after moving. Jeff yesterday, the older you get, the more you're like, oh, I'm just going to take it easy for a day, right? But Pepper Sweet didn't have that. He, he had this voice in the back of his head because when, when he was younger, his, uh, he had four older sisters, but he, so he was the one who mowed the lawn, right? And his dad would come out and be like, well, you're not done yet, you know? So he was like, "I' got to finish the lawn." And so he started to finish the lawn, but his back just seized up on him totally. He couldn't do anything, and he had to stop in the middle and go and go, um, go to the chiropractor and, and, and get his back worked on and, and come back. When he came back, his neighbor, who had, who had uh, seen that the lawn was unmowed, had finished his lawn for him. And he was standing out, and he was like, you know, was like, "Hey, I just I saw you were having trouble and I, I finished your lawn for you." No, no, no problem. Glad you're my neighbor, you know That kind of act. The problem was, Pepper said, initially, I just felt embarrassed, because here I was a grown man, and I couldn't even finish my own lawn. He, he's living in the story of what his dad had told him over and over again. You're not good enough. You didn't finish the lawn. You're not good enough. You didn't finish the lawn. And he needed to remember that that's not the story. This was God stepping into the story and being like, "Hey, you know what? You worked hard. Your back's going out. I love you enough to finish your lawn for you." You see the difference. the The, the way you walk through your story matters. You're either walking in God's grace, enjoying the goodness of God's grace and experiencing his love and his favor in your life, if experiencing his forgiveness when you ask for it. Like, God, I messed up today. I'm sorry. And he's like, "Boom, I'm there. I forgive you." You're either walking in that story or you're walking in some other story that I guarantee is not as kind or as merciful or as helpful or as gracious as God your Father is. So which story are you walking in? Are you walking in that story of even as God in Christ forgave you? Or maybe you're walking in the story of, yeah, I just better forgive because if I don't, my mental health is going to go down the tubes. Or if, if I don't forgive, then... Man, I'm going to look bad. Please, please, please don't live in those stories. They're destructive and deadly. The story you must live in, that you must live in, is God in Christ forgave you. What an awesome story. What a tremendous story. Because then you get to share that forgiveness and that grace with those around you. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that we struggle to receive sometimes. We're caught up in making ourselves look good. We're caught up in defending our rights. We're caught up in Making justice happen. And we forget about you. We forget about what you've done for us, the grace of forgiveness that we have received. And when we do that, we fail to pass on grace and instead often default to malice. Oh, Lord. Help us revel in your forgiveness. Sometimes being reminded of the ways we have needed it, sometimes just reveling in the richness of it, that all our sins past, present, and future are taken care of, that that your mercy and grace is is found in the Holy Spirit given to us and in the body of Christ given to us and and your word given to us and, and just the encouragement of the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we know the end of the story. We know you win. You set things right. You make things perfect. You restore and heal our hearts, wipe every tear from our eye, and set, things, set everything right. Help us to live in that story and rest in you. In your son's name we pray.